You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Acts chapter 23, we of course now are at a section in the book of Acts where Paul has really in one sense fulfilled a lifelong ministry pursuit and dream in going to Jerusalem with the express purpose of preaching the gospel. Uh, He had imagined in his heart that he might be an instrument, a vessel for and in the hand of God to be able to reach the Jewish people. Unfortunately, though, as we saw in chapter 22, they could not abide by the concept of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, being given to the Gentile world. And of course, this was crucial to Luke's purpose in writing the book of Acts. He's tracing not only the rapid spread of Christianity throughout the world at the time, but he is also developing the subplot of the ultimate and final and complete rejection of the Jewish Messiah by the people of Israel. And so Paul's trip to Jerusalem to preach the gospel was crucial to that narrative or to that end. But at this point, as we pick it up in chapter 23, we can imagine the disappointment in the heart of Paul. He's preached, he's been rejected, and now he's been arrested by the Romans and is going to give an account of himself the following day to the Sanhedrin. And what we're going to see in this section is the sovereign hand of God in protecting and leading and sustaining Paul. And in this first movement, when he's near the Sanhedrin, he is going to operate like a man who understands the Sanhedrin because, of course, he did. He understood that machine and the mechanics therein. And so in verse 1, it says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, a good conscience has been a passion of Paul's life throughout his entire ministry. In chapter 20, he, in talking to the Ephesian elders, continually referred to the clean conscience with which he did ministry. And here he declares to his Jewish brothers, not his Christian brothers, that he had declared this message of Jesus Christ with a good and a clean conscience. Now in response, it says in verse 2, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now, Ananias, the high priest who commanded that Paul would be struck on the mouth, served as high priest for about 11 years, 11 or 12 years. And history shows us that he was a violent and greedy man. And so to see him commanding Paul to be physically struck is fits the narrative that is painted of Ananias 
outside of Scripture or outside of the Bible. Paul here says in verse 3, you have ordered me to be struck contrary to the law. Now, they did believe that innocence was yours until proven guilty. And so Paul here lashes out and refers to Ananias as a whitewashed wall. You know, he speaks back to him. And there is a question of how we should view Paul's response. Was this a moment of human weakness? Was this merely righteous indignation as with times in the life of Christ where he would manifest a righteous anger before God? I don't know exactly how we should view Paul's response. All I know is, if it is sin, we cannot be all that self-righteous about it because this man was being pushed to his very limit. Now, those who stood by in verse 4 said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, Ananias here, as the high priest, was occupying what is called a dead position. (laughs) In other words, Jesus, after dying on the cross and rising from the grave, became the ultimate and great high priest. And the high priestly office in Judaism was fading away, now finding its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But Paul, he doesn't argue that point. He just simply says, well, you know, the reality is the Bible says in Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight that you should not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, Paul, in confessing that, is recognizing that the Sanhedrin had some governmental authority and that he wanted to, as a Christian man and Christian citizen, recognize and respect the position of that governmental authority, even if he could not respect the person that occupied that position. Paul claims that he just didn't know that it was the high priest. Uh, It might have been an eyesight issue. It says in verse 1 that he looked intently at the council. Uh, It may have been that in the uproar, he didn't know who it was who gave the command. Uh, It also might have been that Ananias had not been dressed in his high priestly garments of that early hour. And then even beyond that, it's possible that because Paul had been gone for so long, he had no idea who Ananias was or about the position that he occupied. Now, when Paul, verse 6, perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, Paul seems to have realized that there was no hope for justice for him in that moment. And so he used his mind, and I think perhaps a spiritual gift of the word of wisdom, to enable himself to get out of this jam. He realized that there was a theological ticking time bomb that was sitting there right in front of him between Pharisees and Sadducees. You know, the Pharisees held to the veracity of the Old Testament and believed in the possibility of resurrection and in a final resurrection. And some Pharisees were even believers. But the Sadducees rejected the Old Testament, 
rejected the supernatural, including the resurrection. And these two parties debated about these concepts constantly. So when Paul says, it's because of the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial, he knows that he is dividing his audience. He's trying to turn the attention away from himself and to get them disputing once again. And when he had said this, verse 7, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, verse 9, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now later we're going to see that the tribune's name was Lysias. And Paul here is going to come under Lysias's care. And he was actually safer as a Roman prisoner than he was with the Jews at this time. So there he is, rejected completely and thoroughly by his own people. His mission, if he were to consider it from his own perspective, was utter failure. It, I think, was a low moment in the life of Paul. It tells us then in verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. It is fascinating to consider the times when Christ appeared to Paul. This is the fourth vision that Paul received of Christ. He received a vision of Jesus at his conversion, of course, when he was knocked to the ground by the bright light. He received a vision of the man of Macedonia calling him over to Philippi. He received a vision and heard from the Lord in Acts chapter 18 when he was encouraged to remain in Corinth and to push through fear. All of these moments were low moments in the life of Paul. And even as you read 2 Timothy chapter 4, you discover that while in prison, at the moment of his death, the Lord was standing next to this man. So it's fascinating to consider the comfort of Christ, the ministry of Christ, during the deepest points of pain in this man Paul's life. And I think most of us would confess that that was not just Paul's experience, but it is the common experience of God's faithful children even today. That it's in the pains of life, the difficulties of life, the ugliness of life, that we get to hear the voice of the Lord, experience the faithfulness of God to a special degree. Now, Jesus announces to Paul that he must also testify in Rome. This was a way in which Jesus was saying, I've seen your faithfulness there in Jerusalem. He said, you know, you've testified in Jerusalem. You must do the same thing in Rome. This was Jesus's word of commendation. Although 
The fruit might not have been there. The fruit, the fruit was not Paul's responsibility. His responsibility was to testify of Jesus Christ, and, for, and of that he had done. Now, also, Jesus tells him, you must testify of me in Rome. Jesus saw Paul's future. Now, this was a dream for Paul as well. When he wrote the book of Romans, he announced to them that his plan was to come to them to impart some kind of spiritual gift and that he wanted to go to Spain to preach the gospel, but that he would stop by on his way to Spain through Rome after he left Jerusalem. Now, he's not going to actually go through Rome as a free man, but he is going to testify in Rome just as he'd desired. And what a word of comfort this would have been from Jesus Christ at a very low point in the life of Paul. And with that, we launch into some of the travels and trials of Paul the Apostle as we get ready to watch the Lord sovereignly direct his steps to Rome. It says, when it was day, verse 12, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So this assassination plot developed against Paul from these 40 men. They had bound themselves by an oath and decided that they would not even eat any food until they had killed Paul. Now obviously we know the story that they will be ineffective but it is fascinating to consider the absolute hatred that had welled up against this man. This is vehement hatred of the apostle. And of course, the hatred is not merely for Paul, but for Paul's message, for Paul's gospel. Paul himself wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23 that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And so... What is happening here is a group of Jewish men have stumbled at the preaching of the gospel, and it has led them to this vehement hatred. Now, in verse 16, we see the sovereign hand of God on display when it says, Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed, verse 20, to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So 
the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Now, obviously, we understand that it was no coincidence that Paul's nephew, probably at this time in his 20s or even 30s, was able to get this intel about this assassination plot. This was the hand of God. There is no wisdom, Proverbs 21:30, no understanding, no counsel that can avail against the Lord. And God had determined that Paul would go to preach in Rome. Now, when Lysias, the tribune, hears this report from Paul's nephew, he isn't shocked. He believes that the Jews at this point in that fervor are capable of that crime. So, verse 23, it says, Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Now, Lysias, he just couldn't risk the death of one of his prisoners. So here he makes arrangements for Paul to get out of Jerusalem and perhaps even some friends of Paul as well because it speaks of mounts, plural, being given to Paul to ride. So it might be that there were more, there was more than just Paul that were going to travel with these centurions to get out of town. And he wrote a letter, verse 25, to this effect. And this is how Luke and other New Testament writers recorded the sermons as well. Luke went back and found these relevant documents and then gave record of them. And so here's the document. Verse 26, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Never mind that Lysias seems to be fudging the facts a little bit, that uh, he hadn't really discovered that Paul was a Roman citizen or really even rescued all that much. But, you know, he's embellishing things for himself and desiring, verse 28, to know the charge for which they were accusing him. I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So Lysias here in writing this letter is sending Paul up to the governor Felix there in Caesarea on the coast north of Israel. So the soldiers, verse 31, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Now, that was a town about 35 miles from Jerusalem. So in the middle of the night, they steal off to Antipatris. And on the next day, they return to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. So now Paul is in safety. He needs a smaller crew to get from Antipatris to Caesarea. When they had come, verse 33, to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's 
Praetorium. So now the scene is set and Felix is going to actually allow Paul to go through a trial. Paul's accusers have to be present and so that's what chapter 24 is about is this trial between uh, the Jews and Paul before Felix. Now in his record of this trial in chapter 24, Luke is going to give equal space to the Jewish lawyer Tertullus, to Felix, and to Paul. And what it seems that Luke is trying to do is to show through this trial that Christianity was not guilty of inciting political rebellion. And really was trying to show that the persecution from the Jews at least was the result of Christianity's claim to legitimate fulfillment of the hope that was inside of Judaism already. That they were just believing that Christ, that Jesus had fulfilled the Judaistic promises of the Old Testament. That this was not a new religion, in other words, but was a fulfillment of an approved Roman religion in Judaism. So in verse 1, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg in you in your kindness to hear us briefly. So this trial happens five days later, and this hired gun lawyer, Tertullus, an eloquent spokesperson, rises up to bring a case against Paul on behalf of the Jews. And his first move is to use flattery against Felix. For we, verse 5, have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that these things were so. So Tertullus brought three charges against Paul. First of all, that he had started riots, and riots were punishable by Rome. And number two, that he had been the ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes. And sects, you know, new religions, had to be approved by Rome. And number three, that he tried to profane the temple. Uh, they accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which to them was a capital offense. Now, really, they tried to kill him because he said that he preached the Jewish Messiah to the Gentile world. But none of those things are mentioned by the lawyer. They just bring up these three things, the riots, a new religion, and bringing a Gentile onto the Temple Mount. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now, Paul was very honest here, 
the only flattery that he could muster was just a straightforward statement, you've been for many years a judge over this nation. The reality is that Felix had a very bad reputation amongst God's people. And so Paul was not going to, you know, butter him up at all. He says, you, verse 11, can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. They don't have enough witnesses for that. So the first charge about the riots, Paul just dismissed that immediately. He said, you know, you can easily determine that I am not a riot starter. But, verse 14, this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now remember the second charge, that Paul was a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And Paul says, I'm not guilty of that, but here's one thing I am guilty of. I believe everything in the Old Testament, including the resurrection of the just and the unjust. I believe in these things. Now, verse 17, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And that's how Paul viewed his gift to the church at Jerusalem that he'd been gathering from the Corinthian and uh, even the Roman churches. While I was doing this, verse 18, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul again makes it clear. I did not try to go in to profane the temple. There was no crowd. I didn't bring a tumult. I just went in to worship. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Felix is accustomed to Christianity. He's heard about it a little bit. He could see that these were religious charges and not political ones. So he kept Paul in custody, but gave him some leniency, so a little bit of liberty to be able to interact with his friends. So this wasn't because he thought Paul was guilty, but this was a way for him to preserve the Pax Romana and so, you know, he's removing the possibility of a confrontation on his watch between Paul and these religionists. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. 
At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, the marriage between Felix and Drusilla, who's mentioned here, was a scandalous one. She was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I, and at the age of 15 had been married to a man named Azizus, who was the king of Amisa. And eventually, Felix fell in love with Drusilla and sent a sorcerer from Cyprus uh, named Simon to convince her to leave her husband. And so she came to Felix and became Felix's third wife. Traditionally, Drusilla influenced Felix against the truth, just like he had done to her. And Paul there, before both of them, speaks to them about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. So righteousness, the demand of God that he's looking for righteousness. Self-control, the possibility of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to bring self-control, which is one of the proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the coming of judgment as he spoke to them of the end of the age. They were alarmed by this, but were unmoved completely by this. And for two years, Felix left Paul in prison trying to get some kind of payment out of Paul, some kind of bribe, so that he could gain his freedom in that way. It's very likely that during these two years, Luke investigated the background for the book of Luke and the book of Acts. But there was Paul stuck in this prison conducting ministry uh, while he was under arrest and was not free to travel. Now, three days, verse 1, after Festus had arrived in the province. So now Festus uh, succeeds Felix. And he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, sort of one, one of the first places he knows he needs to go is Jerusalem to see how things are doing there. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So two full years later, still they want to kill Paul. And they ask this new governor, Festus, to bring Paul to Jerusalem for a trial. But actually, they don't want to have a trial. They want to take Paul's life. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges with him. So Festus had a lot of business to conduct. He didn't want to be away from Caesarea for an extended time. So he says, well, look, I have to go to Caesarea already. Bring some people and bring charges against the man, and I'll oversee another trial. After he had stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, 
Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? You know, in other words, he heard that the Jews wanted this uh, prisoner to go to Jerusalem for a trial. He wanted to please his, you know, new citizens that he was called to care for in this new position. He wanted to be well-pleasing to them as much as possible. So he asks Paul the prisoner, are you willing to go to Jerusalem for a trial? But Paul said, and this is the thing that really kicked in motion Paul's trip to Rome. He said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, said, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Paul here is using his right as a Roman citizen. Roman law at the time protected Roman citizens by their right of appealing to the emperor. And such appeals could only be made in cases that went beyond the normal jurisdiction of a governor. Uh, when there was a threat of violence or coercion or capital punishment that had been brought. And Paul here is willing to appeal to Nero who is not yet the maniac he would later become. And the question is, why did Paul do this? Perhaps this was his assurance that he'd be able to go to Rome, as Jesus had said. Perhaps he thinks to himself, this is going to be my way of attempting to win official Roman approval for Christianity. And, but possibly the main reason is that Paul just knows it is dangerous for me to go to Jerusalem. And so he uses the citizenship, the Roman one, that God had given to him by birth. And Festus announces, to Caesar you shall go. He had no other choice to make politically. So he couldn't have acquitted Paul. It would have cost him a lot of political capital to do so. So he decides to send Paul to Rome. And in our next study, we're going to see what charge he gave to Paul in order to send him to Rome, or, or debating over the difficulty of having no charge with which to send Paul to Rome. But Paul here will go to Rome, just as Christ had said. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.